they would be these truths that you hold in your heart and your mind and you hold them tightly, um, no matter what you're facing today or what you might face in the days ahead. Um, this story is about the love of Jesus, and it's not just about his love uh, for the many, for the world, but they're about his love for each of us. And I'm just going to dive in. Um, we're looking at Mark chapter 5. I'm going to pick it up in verse 21. And it says this. It says, when Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side. And so Jesus has just left a crowd that we read about in the end of Mark chapter 4, crossed to the other side in a boat. And in the middle of that journey was when this massive storm arose and Jesus calmed that storm as it moves on he delivered a demon-possessed man and crosses back and it says that a great crowd gathered about him so the same crowd Jesus had left before is now waiting for him upon his return and he was beside the sea and then he came to one of the rulers of the synagogue Jairus by name the rulers of the synagogue at this time and in this setting are among the most respected and the most revered people in society. And so picture someone very well known and highly regarded stepping up um, and becoming the center of attention. He comes up to Jesus and he sees him and he falls at his feet. That would have been shocking, by the way, because Jesus was not welcomed by the religious leaders at this point. And so for this very highly respected religious leader to come up and fall down before the feet of Jesus would have taken everybody's breath away in the crowd. And Jairus then implored Jesus earnestly and says, my little daughter. We find out that he's there pleading with Jesus on behalf of his 12-year-old daughter and he says that she's at the point of death. And so his request is this, come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so as a father, I can understand the desperation here, thinking I've tried everything and my, my child is about to pass, but I've heard of this healer. And so he's come and he's doing all that he can think to do. I'm going to humiliate myself. I'm a respected, revered person in this society and in this culture. This, these people know who I am. I don't care. I'm throwing myself at your mercy. I'm throwing myself at your feet. Please come and save my child who could die at any moment. He believes here, it seems to me, without question, that Jesus can save his daughter's life. There doesn't seem to be any doubt in his mind. He says to Jesus, come lay your hands on her so she will be made well and live. Come as quickly as you can. And so Jesus goes with him. And keep in mind that the crowds at this point are flocking to Jesus because they've seen and they've heard some of what's been happening. If we back up to Mark chapter 1, um, I'll just kind of paraphrase this quickly. I didn't um, give an address for this upstairs, but in Mark chapter 1 and verses 33 and 34, the Bible says that the whole city gathered at the door of a house where Jesus was staying. And we ask, well, why were they there? Because Jesus was healing many who were sick with various diseases. So word has spread that he can do miracles, and they know that he has the power to make people well. And just imagine if you know, we thought about all the various 
ailments we might have here among us this morning, all the different things we see the doctor for and all the medications that we might take in this room. Just imagine if we knew, hey, down the street, some guy just showed up and he, all he has to do is speak a word, maybe touch you, and you're healed. No more medications, no more canes, no more need for any of that stuff. He can just speak and you're good. Imagine how crowded that guy's house would be this morning if we knew that. And that's what's happening as Jesus moves from place to place because they know he has the power to heal. All he has to do is speak a word. And so everybody's running to him. Mark 5.24 states, A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And so you have all these people surrounding him, and they're walking quickly now on the way to Jairus' house to minister to this 12-year-old who is at the point of death, and it's urgent. But watch what happens in the story. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. If we just pause here, I, I think we probably know this story. Sometimes because we know the story, we move through it quickly in our, in our heads. But let's just pause here for a minute and think about what we just read. Think about this woman and the hurt that is written all over her life at this point, And it would affect her in so many ways. Beyond just the problem of the unstoppable bleeding for 12 years, which is interesting when you consider that's the same amount of time that this daughter of Jairus has been alive. So this 12-year-old girl that Jesus is going to heal has lived the same amount of time that this woman who's now approaching Jesus has dealt with this issue of blood. She's physically hurting, physically in pain. And scripture says she suffered much under many physicians. In other words, there's a physical condition here that no physician seems able to cure. Then, along with this daily pain and the weakness and the hurt associated with that, if that's not enough, she's also suffering spiritually because according to Jewish law at the time, she is ceremonially unclean. She can't go to the temple. She can't worship or go to synagogue. She is a spiritual outcast. She is labeled too dirty for worship. Not only does this have spiritual ramifications for her, it clearly has social ramifications. Because she's unclean, she is required at all times to social distance. I mean, if we just think back a couple years ago, think about what social distancing was like. And some of you think, well, can we just bring that back? I liked it. Everybody stayed away from me. Like some of us like, just want people, you know, we want to have a bubble. People stay back, right? But for the most part, we're kind of wired to have some amount of contact with other humans. And we, w we want it. We need it. Physical touch is very important. But because she had been deemed unclean, she had to completely distance herself for these 12 years. Couldn't hug anyone. Couldn't touch anyone. Extreme social distancing. On top of that, she's hurting financially. Scripture says she spent all that she had. She has no money left. And the end result for her at this point is 
that she is not just financially worse off, she's actually physically worse off. Verse 27 says, She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in a crowd. Just imagine what that must have been like for her. She's not supposed to be in a crowd. Twelve years she probably has avoided crowds and stayed away from them. And here she probably trembling, making her way through the crowd, not wanting to infect anyone with her uncleanliness. And she's doing the unthinkable here. Probably keeping her head down, not drawing attention to herself, hoping nobody sees her. Just trying to get to Jesus. She gets close enough, and the story tells us that she reaches out and she touches his garment. We don't really have to ask what's going through her head right now because scripture tells us. The passage says, for she said, and the language here is like it's, it's something that she's saying over and over to herself again and again, almost like murmuring it, if I just touch him. I can just touch his garments, I'll be made well. What a statement after 12 years of suffering. Here is a woman who is completely desperate, and yet she's completely confident at the same time. Totally confident. She believes and she knows if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. The word there is translated most often in the New Testament, delivered or saved. She knows if I touch him, I'm delivered, I'm saved. Then in verse 29, it says, Immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So she touches his garment, and it's... For her, it's as if time has now stood still. For the first time in 12 years, she's free of the physical effects of this disease. Additionally, this is going to play out for her now. She's no longer spiritually unclean. She no longer has to social distance. For the first time in over a decade, she'll be free to be a normal member of society. Everything has changed for her in a moment. And this is where I want to make this very personal for each one of us. There's some truths in what's just happened and what we're going to see in Jesus' response that are applicable for every one of us individually. The first one is a statement that I want to work through for a moment. And that is this, that in every hurt, Jesus is your answer. In every hurt, Jesus is your answer. And I know that if I were to look here this morning and just say, okay, let's open this up and let's talk who here has a physical hurt, that we would spend a lot more time than we usually spend here on a Sunday talking about our physical hurts. I also know that if we got a little deeper, and said, okay, raise your hand and let's talk if anybody's feeling spiritually hurt, that that conversation could take days. We could also ask the question, let's be completely honest, does anybody here feel too dirty to worship? 
spiritually unclean? Is that causing a lack of spiritual peace? I know in a gathering of any size, there's feelings of being socially unacceptable or socially unwanted. Maybe separated from people that you long to be close to. I know if we were to ask the question, is anybody hurting economically, financially? We could talk about that for a long time. Wondering, like, where's the next check coming from? And regardless of what the answers to those questions would be that we might give if I put you on the spot and said, let's talk about our hurts for a moment. No matter what those are or how long we could talk about them, I want you to understand for every hurt that we have, Jesus is our hope. Perhaps you're hurting a lot, and my suggestion there is very frustrating to you, and you think, well, that's just too simplistic. It's almost ridiculous how simplistic that is. And that's the problem with you Christian folks and the church. You just think the answer is always Jesus. <laughs> I'm still, uh, I wish I had talked to him more, but I, I developed a friendship with a guy who was a Bible college professor in Portland for a lot of years, and he's now um, teaching at a university in Georgia, so I don't have easy access to him anymore. But he gave me some pushback one time because uh, he, he discovered about our second or third test, anytime I didn't know the answer on a test, I'd just write Jesus, because I figured it had to be the answer in some way, right? He had, he had trouble you know, giving me zero credit for that answer as a theologian, because he knew, really, that's true. It's not ridiculous, and it's not too simplistic to say that he is the answer. Yet we think, well, my problems are practical. Maybe I'm facing real financial problems, and what I need is not Jesus at this moment. I just need a better job. I need the economy to be better, and the hope for supporting myself and my family, it's not Jesus. It's just me working hard to get a good job or a better job. Maybe the answer to my physical problems today is not Jesus. It's just medicine. It's just better doctors or better nurses or better research in whatever field that's plaguing me. We could go down the list and we could do this with every problem that we have, right? But it's an extremely dangerous place to be if that's our thinking. If we reject the idea that Jesus is our hope, then what we're left with is whatever situation we're encountering, that what we really need is just more confidence on ourselves. And if so, we're in danger of missing the whole point here. Just look back over the last few years on what we've experienced on a, on a global level, looking at the global pandemic. And I hope we paid close attention to it. What more evidence do we need of our frailty and our weakness? Think about how quickly the whole world had to shut down and how insufficient we all felt. Our strategies proved to be kind of silly and insufficient just because we were making them up in real time, hoping to figure something out. The truth is we cannot save ourselves. We need Jesus. I want to be crystal clear. I go to the doctor. I see the doctor. I take medications. 
But I tell you what, there's been times where I knew a big appointment was coming up, and I've prayed for my doctor before I went in. Lord, help him to see what he needs to see. Help me to understand what he wants me to understand. Every medical researcher and doctor and nurse that we encounter, they're just working with whatever knowledge the Lord's allowed them to possess. That's why I pray that God helps them before I go to an appointment. Do it often. This idea is really straight from Scripture as well. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. All things. That means my hope when I go to the doctor is not ultimately in my doctor. Whatever research he's depending on, ultimately my hope is always in Jesus, the one who formed my body, the one who sustained my body every breath that I've taken my entire life. His name is Jesus. I don't want to get into a political discussion because that could be a disaster. (laughs) But just we think like we want to think, hey, there's people in our government who are working really hard to stabilize the economy right now. Let's just pretend that's true, right? Let's be clear. Our hope's not in our governor or the state or the president of our country. Our hope is in the governor of the wind and the waves, the king who has the capacity to say to a storm, be still and have it stop. The one who can silence demons and heal disease. That's who our hope's in. In our story in Mark chapter 5, this woman who's approached Jesus with the understanding, if I can just touch him, I'll be healed. She knew Jesus can do what no one else can do for me. And I pray that we have the same sense that in every hurt, Jesus is our hope. That's only comforting if we believe that he cares for us. If we don't believe that he cares for us, but we think he's my only hope, then this isn't really good news. It's not encouraging. And so let's just keep going with the story a little bit. This woman has dealt with this for 12 years. Nothing's gone right. Things have just gotten worse. But she understands if I can just get close to him, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. So she does the unthinkable. She jumps into a crowd that she's not supposed to be in. Chases him down, touches his garment, and immediately her body's healed. I assume she wanted to get out of the crowd as fast as possible at that point. But notice what happens in verse 30. Jesus, perceiving himself that a power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? You talk about getting caught. ever do something that you hope nobody else sees and then somebody calls you out on it? And if it's just you and them, that's one thing, but if it's you and the whole city, so much for a quick getaway. She's probably thinking, how could he know? And the disciples are thinking, how could he know? 
In verse 31, his disciples said to, said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Like, what kind of question are you asking, Jesus? But he looked around to see who had done it. And the language implies that he scans the perimeter and he's searching the crowd to find the one. He understands one person touched me and something happened and I want to know who that was. This is another truth that I want you to personalize today. And said, you know, in whatever hurt you're facing, Jesus is your hope. But right here what we see is that in a world of very urgent need, Jesus notices you. He stops for you. Jesus stops where he's going. Think about where he's going. He's headed to Jairus' home to save his 12-year-old daughter, but somebody reaches out and touches him, so he, he immediately stops and wants to find out who touched me. There's an urgent need that he's responding to, and he says, wait a minute, I'm stopping. At work, um, I have a habit of putting earbuds in and listening to music for four or five hours, or sometimes I listen to a John Piper sermon, which seems to last four or five hours as well. Um, but there's a lot of conversation that goes on in the little hub that I hang out in in my office, and sometimes it's stuff I need to participate in, and sometimes it's just conversation that people are having. And During those moments of the day, I just keep my earbuds in and I just do work. The exception to that there's two people that I answer to. I have two bosses. If either one of them come around the corner past my desk, earbuds come out immediately. There's an amount of reverence and respect for who they are and what positions and authority they have in life, and my earbuds come out. And sometimes they're just there to goof off and talk about something silly, and I put my earbuds back in. But immediately, if they come around the corner, my earbuds are out, and I'm listening. They have my attention. It's just the norm, right? Your boss comes around the corner, you listen. The revered people around you come around, you listen. Look at what's happening in the story. Jairus is a spiritual leader, a religious leader in town. He's one of the most respected men in the city. It's of great concern that his daughter might pass. That's where Jesus is going when this story starts, to the home of one of the most respected men in the city, one of the elites. And now he's stopping, completely shut down his movement toward Jairus' home, turning around and saying, who touched me? A commoner in a crowd has touched him, and Jesus says, this is worth stopping for. This is awesome to me. Perhaps the disciples are saying, Jesus, what are you doing? Look at the crowd of people. Just a bunch of commoners chasing you around. We're going to Jairus' home to save his 12-year-old daughter. The world focuses on in levels of importance, right? All the time. Think about who's more important. And that's what we give our attention to. Whoever's the top of that pole, right? They've climbed the highest. They climbed the ladder. We pay attention to them. That's how the world thinks about crowds. Here's Jesus, though, stopping on a dime, saying, I want to find the one who touched me. And this is where I want to urge you, right where you're sitting, to consider yourself. 
there is a world of urgent need around us. Literally millions of things that the Holy Spirit is at work ministering to throughout the world, but see the reality that Jesus stops for you. He hears you. He listens to you. Yes, Jesus loved the crowds. Yes, Jesus loved the world. He gave his life for the world, ministering throughout the world right now, but he is also, by his Holy Spirit, ministering to you right now, meeting with you right now. He stops for us. We have this straight from the word of God. I'm going to give you some more locations here in just a moment. He stops for you because he loves you. Your needs or my needs might not be as severe as someone else's, but that's the beauty of this passage. That doesn't mean that he doesn't care. He cares about every single thing that you're thinking about and every single thing that you're struggling with. He's not distant from you. I apologize, I didn't give this scripture reference to the folks upstairs this morning, but 1 Peter 5, 6 through 8 come to mind where we're told to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt us. But then Peter says this, that we cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. He cares for you. This is but basically like a command with a promise that we're given in Scripture. Take all your anxieties to him because he cares for you. Every hurt that you have, he's your hope, and he cares for you. And this care in this story, it's, it's so indiscriminate, and it's beautiful that it is. This passage makes clear Jesus cares about the elite. He's going to Jairus' home, but he also cares about the outcast. She wasn't just a commoner. She was a complete outcast. He cares about the synagogue ruler, and he cares about the struggling, hurting woman. The rich and the poor, the most respected in town and the most rejected in town. He ministers to both. And so the story continues in Mark 5, verse 33. It says, The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The crowd and the disciples are dumbfounded by Jesus' question. Listen to the wording. Knowing what happened to her, she came in fear and trembling. This is the same word used if we were to back up into Mark chapter 4 to describe how the disciples felt when Jesus calmed the storm. It's reverence and it's awe. And she is just in awe of Jesus to the point where she's trembling and falls down before him. And she tells him the whole truth. This is really breathtaking. This woman, no doubt, knows that she is unclean. She's an outcast. And here she is falling at Jesus' feet and pouring out her heart, telling all, all the hurt and pain that had built up for these 12 years, the physical pain, the spiritual pain, the financial pain, social pain. She's just pouring it all out. But she also says, if I just knew if I could touch you, I'd be okay. I'd be delivered. The crowd has to be thinking, somebody in the crowd has to be thinking, wait a minute. 
This unclean woman has just touched Jesus. He is unclean. There's a truth here that shouldn't be hard for us to accept as people who drive past this sign on our way to church all the time. Jesus takes you as you are. The sign always says, come as you are. It's been that way since as long as I can remember. Come as you are, you'll be loved. So often, whether it's church or even trying to present ourselves to the Lord in prayer, so often we want to get ourselves into a a specific state of mind or some kind of spiritual condition where we think we've kind of made ourselves clean and then I'll go to church or then I'll approach the Lord. That's not what we see in the story. It's not what we see in Scripture at all. Jesus takes you as you are. I have to think this woman knew that touching Jesus would defile him. It was really strict law for an unclean person to stay away from other people. I don't think she could understand. She wasn't a theologian. I don't think she could understand that this was the whole purpose for Jesus coming. Jesus didn't come for the clean. He came for the unclean. He didn't come for those who were well. He came for those who were sick. Certainly didn't come for those who had their act together. He came because he knew the whole world needs help. This is the whole story of the gospel, really, the whole story of Scripture, that we were created to know God and to enjoy him and to enjoy one another, but because of sin, um, there's separation from God, and we lost harmony with God, the harmony that he really desired for us from the beginning. And so now we have sickness and sorrow and disease and death, separation from God, and if we die in that state, then we suffer eternity without him. Which begs this question, is there any escape, any hope deliverance from the sin and the suffering? And the good news of the Bible is, yes, there is hope. There's a deliverer. There's a rescuer who came to remedy that separation. It's Jesus who came to live a life of no sin, yet die for our sin, to pay our penalty. Then to come out of the grave and rise in victory over sin and death so that anyone who trusts in him will be cleansed of all their sin and reconciled to God. This is the gospel. It's the greatest news in the world. Jesus came to take our dirtiness upon himself so that we could be clean. He took our shame upon himself and then says, now you can receive honor. Came to experience our death so that we could live eternally. Verse 34, listen to his final words to her. He says to her daughter, I didn't do an exhaustive search, but I think this is the only time I could find in the New Testament where Jesus addressed a woman with this term of endearment. He says, daughter, your faith has been has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Go in peace. For those who trust in Jesus, no matter what your future holds, his peace 
will always remain. It's eternal. His peace is eternal. It never passes away. This is so important to see here. Up until this point, these other three truths we've extracted from this story pretty much apply to anyone. If you have hurt, Jesus is your hope. That's for everyone. Even those who dislike Jesus or have disdain for them, he is their only hope. If you have urgent needs, Jesus stops for you. He hears you. He pays attention. That's for everyone. Jesus cares about you. He takes you just as you are, not as you wish you were. That's for everyone. But this truth, this idea, his peace being upon you and having it be eternal, have it be something that never passes away, this is only for those who trust in him. If we go back to verse 34 and look what Jesus says to this woman, what made her well? He says, your faith has made you well, or your faith has saved you. It's the same word used earlier when she said, if I only touch him, he can make me well. He can deliver me. He can save me. She has trusted Jesus, and that's the reason that she was saved. This leads to some obvious questions. One being, so if I trust Jesus, does that mean that I'll be automatically delivered from all disease? And the short answer is that that's not what this passage means and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that if we trust Jesus, we'll never get sick, that we'll always be made physically well. That's a false teaching, and I don't want to get into that, but that's not the gospel at all. The good news of the gospel is far better than that. The good news, the great news of the gospel is not that God will heal all my diseases or sicknesses today. The good news is that he will cleanse me of all sin and all unrighteousness today and then forever. And he'll do that for you as well. Because of that, faith in Jesus leads us to peace. When we see this word peace here, it's a word that's in reference to harmony and relationship with God himself. And so for all who trust Jesus, you have a peace from the God of the universe that will never pass away no matter what your future holds. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow, and it's foolish to think otherwise. And you think, well, that's pretty depressing. I hope you don't end the message there. But follow me for a moment. The reason I land here with this personal conversation that comes from the story of Mark is that for those who put their trust in Jesus, more important than anything else, I want you to see his peace never passes away. Paul wanted this desperately when he wrote the letter to the Romans for them to be settled on this issue. I didn't think about adding this till just like a couple minutes before service, so I didn't ask for this to be shown, but Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. 
Paul wrote these words, he says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His peace never passes away. No matter what the future holds, the love of Jesus will never, ever let you down. So trust in him. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, I urge you today, trust him. And if you've trusted him, hold tightly to him. Day after day and moment after moment, knowing he always stops for you. And I'll stop right there. Don't need to say anymore. Heavenly Father, thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for sending your son to live a life that we could not live and to die a death that we deserved so that we could have eternal life. Thank you that you give us your spirit who walks closely with us through this life so we understand that at all times we can call out and cry out, Abba, Father. We know that you hear us when we pray and we're told to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. And so this morning I just, I worship you and I praise you for who you are and all that you do and I thank you for loving us and making your peace available to us not just momentarily, but a real peace with you, harmony with you that cannot be taken by anything or anyone. We love you. May our lives give you glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.